Welcome to Muse and Hearth, a podcast for women cultivating their minds and homes. I'm Lydia Fukushan, and I'm joined by my co-host, Valerie Abraham. Today, we're going to be talking about Jane Austen, and specifically about the book Emma, and the newest film rendition with comments on some of the older ones that we've seen also. Um, But since the new one just came out, it seems like a good time to discuss that book in particular. Yes, it uh, is probably one of the most adapted uh, works, I think, of Jane Austen, because it's had, I think, more even than Pride and Prejudice. Hmm. Um, 1996 one, 2008. This is at least the third. I think there's a fourth that's less well-known, also from the 90s. I'm wondering if there's one that was done much earlier. Um, Mm. I Mm. noticed there was an early one of Pride and Prejudice. Um, Oh, black and white? Yeah. So, I've not seen it yet. I've been curious about it. I haven't either. I, I Yeah, I would enjoy watching through it. Um, just because it's a different... I feel like everything interpreted through the lens of American culture, eight, say, 80 years ago, it's mm-hmm. just going to look different and be translated on the screen a different way. That's so. true. Hmm. Speaking of which, this most recent one... Wow. <laughs> um, I feel like we, there are so many current modern cultural assumptions that just get mm-hmm. slapped all over the surface of Austin's mm-hmm. story. Um, I hardly know where to start. <laughs> um, yes. Suffice it, it to say, I don't think either one of us really thought yes. much of the new Cared version. Wouldn't you say that's fair? It. Absolutely. There, there were a few, there were one or two characters and one or two scenes that I thought were well done. But the spirit of it, and most of the other scenes, I thought were, ah, Jane Austen would be turning over in her grave and wondering who had plagiarized her work and distorted it so much. I, I entirely agree. I have to say, even from the very first scenes, and set aside the fact that Jane Austen says that herself that she thinks that she may be the only one who likes her character, Emma, at the beginning. So she mm-hmm. expected Emma to be disliked. Right. But that's not the problem that I have with the new one. Um, yeah. The problem I have is that I, I think no character is sympathetic. In fact, the whole, mm-hmm. the whole um, environment is not sympathetic um, to the mm-hmm. modern... And American. I mean, they really were designing it for a modern American audience. Yes. And I can't imagine even, let's say, even the most elite American being comfortable Hmm. with the kind of way that that the producer portrayed um, the wealth that Emma had, for example, this or the society, you very much get the feeling that this is a movie that was produced in the wake of Downton Abbey and the fascination everyone has with that, that this would not have been made the way it was if this were the nineties. Yes, that I I think you're exactly right. Um, I actually, the, the scene that did it for me that made me think of Downton Abbey is when the, her father, Emma's father, comes mm-hmm. rushing, blustering in at the very beginning of the movie and mm-hmm. stands in front of the fireplace and his servants are removing his coat and switching to his slippers or vice versa or something. Mm-hmm. And the, the way he talks, the way he stands, the way even the camera pans and the lighting and everything was very mm-hmm. and the it really is the clip of the conversation too is very Downton Abbey esque and I was mm-hmm. watching going oh well this looks <laughs> this looks oddly familiar and not very often mm-hmm. <laughs> um, well and I'm trying to remember too I believe I read that a lot of comparisons have been drawn between the cinematography of this and. Uh, I'm having trouble remembering exactly, but I believe it was a movie on Marie Antoinette. It was something related oh, to French royalty, for that sure. One that came out and also that, in the recent release. Mm-hmm, and that would make a lot of sense 
of the kind of focus that you're describing and the the tone uh, that they were going for the tone right the tone with the contrast of servants and luxury i was going to say you could imagine in a movie about marie antoinette that's pretty loaded when it Mm -hmm. comes to concepts of basically the bourgeoisie and Mm -hmm. proletariat and yeah Yeah, exactly (laughs) and so Um, if they were coming at it from that angle then it would mm-hmm. be no mistake that any audience member would notice it. Yes. Ah, there we go. I just found the uh, one of the references. So Autumn DeWild, the director, uh-huh. uh, cited Marie Antoinette and the Grand Budapest Hotel, which actually, wow, I did not know that until reading it just now. That's very interesting. That explains um, as the color inspiration, choices for sure. Yeah. Exactly. As inspiration for, according to this quote, the candy color scheme of Emma. But if it was inspiring the set design, I think, then that that is obviously inspiring more than the set design. I, I think so. It's a very intentional choice. For sure. And the, and the other, the you, you and I mentioned this briefly before we um, started this episode, but um, the approach to the servants in general in the movie mm-hmm. is, um, and perhaps that's not quite, I haven't seen any of Marie Antoinette, but um, I have seen some of Downton Abbey and I think that's, another comparison we could make mm-hmm. um, because the servants are supposed, I mean, the, in the way Austin writes the story, there are servants there, but they are completely right. off scene. And mm-hmm. in this movie, they are visible at every turn, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. And it's, they're almost distracting from the main characters. Right. And I have no problem with a show that makes the servants and the family real. But what I do have a problem with is taking Austin, who culturally just assumed their presence and set them aside mm-hmm. as not her main focus, for good or for ill, for however we feel about that now. She did that. And then to take a movie and take how we feel about servitude and make that Mm -hmm. kind of the forefront of the style of the whole thing anyway you know if we have our classic egalitarian society wants to see everybody right it's it this is the feminist studies reinterpretation of emma and the you know anthropological socialist studies reinterpretation of Emma. Right. It's just a really, it's, it's a really poor reading of what she actually wrote. If you have to see it only from your own point of view. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's really what it's doing violence to her authorship. It's not letting her have her own voice, which is extremely ironic when it's coming from a feminist director to then strip the to author take a of female her voice author. by putting your own modern voice yeah. over that author's yeah. voice. That is ironic. Yes. <laughs> and frustrating. <laughs> but yes. more on that later. <laughs> oh, and that oh happens all the time in uh, yeah. modern literary criticism and modern history. And ugh. it reminds me actually a lot of um, when I was doing just a little bit of graduate studies at a state university. Mm-hmm. Oh, the It was baffling to me why anyone was in the program to begin with, and why any of the professors were there either, because they had absolutely zero sympathy for the people and the cultures and the events that they were studying. And so for me, you know, studying them as a Christian, studying them as someone who thinks that modernity is not perfect, (laughs) that the past may actually have something to teach us, believe it or not, it was so frustrating to be sitting with these men and women who just, it's... (sighs) Beyond not being able to understand these people, it was just this inability to even try to understand or to see that there was any validity to it. Or really, like a pure condescension. Like, yes, absolutely. Complete lack of value. Yeah. And yeah, and what a depressing reason to go into history so that you can just criticize. Right. You do ask, people. like, why are you even here? <laughs> right. <laughs> why? What? What do you consider the purpose of yes. your of your job? If this is how you feel about the content, it's like someone who, yeah, it's like someone who hates bugs becoming an entomologist. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Anyways, uh, but yes, well, we must so sympathize. The the that um, opening segment um, portraying. Emma and Mr. Knightley and her father and the servants and their interaction and 
making them incredibly unsympathetic mm-hmm. um, to a modern audience. Um, I felt like hurt the it just hurt the whole movie immediately, mm-hmm. including yeah. but not limited to how you relate to or interact with Mr. Knightley. And Mm -hmm. because he was set up that way at the very beginning, I don't feel that she ever reclaims a true, Mm -hmm. true to Austin character of Knightley the whole way through. So I I think that she, after setting it up that way, tries to humanize the different characters by breaking through their manners basically she in other words i think part of what's going on in this whole setup um that makes you feel very alienated from the characters is that she views so she is an autumn DeWilde, the director uh views manners as something that are a mere mask and it's not that manners cannot mask things but they're also an integral part of human society Mm. and how we love each other Mm. um but she views them as just a mask that you put on, something that's hiding what's actually going on. She almost views them, I think, as dehumanizing. Yeah. And so then when she wants to actually try and make the characters more real, she resorts to almost like a burlesque sort of grotesque humor that doesn't fit with the movie. Um, <laughs> Spoiler like, alert about the uh, yes. proposal. I think it's worth yes. mentioning here. <laughs> so, right. If, and there's a few different scenes. There's, I mean, it starts with... The way that they show both Emma and Mr. Knightley dressing in just kind of crass ways. Um, in fact, there's actually a really interesting quote. She commented on that in an interview and said, um, well, so according to the article, before dispatching him to spar with her heroine, Mr. Wilde wanted to show Knight, Mr. Knightley in a private moment. He can be a bit of a mansplainer, she thought, so she decided to literally strip him of his bossy pants. Quote, I thought it would be very good to see him as a vulnerable human. Which, again, you know, Austin does not do that. Austin does not seem to think that he needs that. And entirely a feminist reinterpretation of the character. Not to mention and that then, the scene of him nude doesn't really do that for me. <laughs> I didn't think it was an effective exactly. device, even if she thought it was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and then I think this also comes out a little bit in Mr. Elton's proposal, uh, where he kind of in a slightly just ridiculous manner kind of falls onto her lap in a way that is obviously supposed to have a sort of double interpretation um, in, in the middle of the proposal because the carriage jolts. Right. Um, and then at the very end, like you were alluding to, Emma gets a nosebleed. There's no mention of nosebleeds anywhere else in the movie. Just all of a sudden, out of the blue, her nose starts bleeding in the middle of the proposal. Not, not to, to mention, mention the that, fact she also... that she does not get a nosebleed in the book. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes, not to mention that as well. Also, and then she also runs away, which is weird. The Not other, the other the thing that I think life. is worth taking into account is how many friends do you have that have been proposed to and gotten a nosebleed in the middle of their proposal? It really doesn't right. happen. Yes. <laughs> so it's so painfully contrived as to be completely mm-hmm. unbelievable in mm-hmm. any era, let alone yes. let alone that era, but but our own or any other time. I think I'm, yeah. I'm sure it's I think that's a someone, good one, but you know, <laughs> once. <laughs> I think that's a good word for it, though. Contrived. Yeah, it, it feels <laughs> the very whole thing contrived. just feels. Yeah, even and, her attempts to humanize them. And you mentioned um, Mr. Knightley um, getting mad about his love for yes, Emma, and that I she seems that to like mm-hmm. um, Churchill better, and just ripping off his waistcoat or her overcoat and just throwing him on the floor and throwing himself on the floor mm-hmm. and. It's not that there is any concept that they couldn't have done those things, but it just mm-hmm. terribly misrepresents them. And, you know, it almost could have worked if they hadn't been set up as, as the director would say, as um, so pompous at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Like it almost could have been less of a, less of a, she was trying for a reality check, I guess, yeah. or a humanizing gesture. But instead, right. it just ends up being jarring. Jarring. And, and quite honestly, I the... didn't think... So Mr. Knightley comes back with this proposal for Emma when he realizes that she isn't interested in Churchill. Well, mm. actually, he comes back to propose to her before he knows. He comes back to comfort her and mm-hmm. say, right. it, you know, those memories will fade in time. 
Yes. Because he thinks that she was in love with him and that she was jilted by him. Right. Um, she had her heart broken and was yeah. recovering from that. But quite honestly, when he came and proposed to her, my first thought was, what does he see in her? I don't see any hmm. basis for affection in the whole setup to this hmm. moment. He's critiqued her, sure. He's been around mm-hmm. the family some, but they didn't even show that very well. Um, hmm. And you have absolutely no reason to believe that he really actually is in love with her and wants to marry her. Hmm. Um, Interesting. I felt. That's a good point. So there's no, there's not enough character development on her part her to part, grow out of the character who's not likable into the character who's and maybe likeable. and maybe his part as well. And maybe that's part of it hmm. is that you just you look at him and you go, wait, what? I didn't see. I didn't see any familial affection, brotherly affection for her previously, any Mm. true interest. I think they took out the scenes about him, um, which are in the book, about him talking about her reading or her self-development. They barely touch on those. And Austin, I think, used those to show that he cared like an older brother for her. Hmm. Um, That's a good point, because he talks a lot with Mrs. Weston in the book, yes. I think, and somewhat in the other movie interpretations about Emma. And so you learn a lot about all of the characters by hearing them talk about each other. Yes, which is a really uh, something that Austin did brilliantly. Like she brings mm-hmm. you along in each of their minds as they learn about each other um, through conversations. Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, she, she was incredible at conversation yeah yeah and when you cut those out so actually at the beginning they were truer to her conversations and some of her wording than some of the other movie versions Mm -hmm. and actually Mm -hmm. appreciated Mm -hmm. that i thought oh that's interesting that they included that much from the original um so that was something i appreciated but then at the end almost as if they needed to wrap up quickly Mm-hmm. They started having, uh, particularly in the exchange between Emma and um, Harriet, Harriet Smith, they started basically creating summary assumptions, jumps, leaps of hmm. logic among the characters without giving the audience a chance to sort of get there too, like have your own journey as you're watching the story. Mm. And Austin really allows you to learn along with her characters. Um, Yes, absolutely. It's a very slow journey through Austin. Yeah, methodical sort of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, similar to um, Emma in some of those scenes with Harriet and with Mr. Knightley, as Emma sort of realizes slowly what's actually going on. Her eyes are opened, Mm -hmm. basically. Mm -hmm. Um, I noticed in um, Persuasion, um, recently was reading the first few chapters there, and the setup is very methodical and sort Mm. of slow-paced. It's You barely see Anne Elliot as a character, and that's Mm. an interesting... it's, It's an interesting device anyway that Austin uses because Anne is sort of a retiring character. And right. so she... The whole point make, is that no one else sees her. Right. And she sort of makes it that way for the audience, too, which is mm-hmm. fascinating. I had... Mm. You almost don't realize that she slips into the room and she gets mentioned and mm. you go, oh, wait, I thought she was away. Oh, wait, no, mm. she's here. Um, anyway, but I feel like the um, director of the new Emma just really didn't allow us some of the most satisfying moments of the whole story Hmm. where you watch Emma just have that realization. Um, Hmm. And when Harriet turns around to her in the movie and says, you want Mr. Knightley for yourself, or you have designs on Mr. Knightley Hmm. for yourself, which Harriet never said in the book. Yeah. And that's part of what preserves their friendship is that Harriet never She never saw that. She never felt that. Right. And Emma is the one in her own mind who suddenly goes oh oh the only person who probably should marry him is me and i had no Mm. idea (laughs) you know Mm -hmm. um she she didn't know her own heart um and they really they steal that 100 percent steal that from you as an audience yeah well Um, and i think part of the problem oh go ahead sorry 
Oh, I think part of the problem is that that takes work. The audience has to work to see that. And Austin makes you work through it with her. She takes a lot of time and that doesn't work with the modern attention span. Yeah, you do have to be patient. Um, Right. And, and it is not in addition to patience, it really does take work in your understanding of the novel. Um, Her novels are not just, you know, a dime novel that you sit back and read in an afternoon. In fact, I think Emma's one of her longer ones too. Um, Related to that, I have noticed also most of the movies tend to cut off pretty quickly after the proposal. Whereas I was surprised on uh, a recent reread of Emma, how much of the book. So I was listening to an audio and it was, I think about 90 minutes of the audiobook happened after the proposal. So there's a lot more to the story than just that quick culmination race to the end. We, you know, proposal, everyone's happy, lives happily ever after, all done. There's right. a lot more that has to happen before she can wrap up the story. Because she's not fully developed her characters yet. Mm-hmm. They, they right. grew to the point of that proposal. And then I think they have to grow a little more mm-hmm. um, and change a little more by the end. Um, right. And they change together, too. Um, right. Emma and Mr. Knightley get to grow now as a couple. And you don't get to enjoy watching the beauty of that story in any of the movie renditions, really. Yeah, which is actually really, it's satisfying that it's there because I don't know if you've had this experience, but I have read other um, novels where there's a love interest and you get to the end and it's the end. And you wonder, Mm -hmm. but what really happened to them afterwards? I would like to see how that went. (laughs) Yes, and Um, I think... And Jane does that, Jane Austen does that. At at the risk of opening up the whole can of worms, I think that can be the danger in too steady a diet of romance novels because then you sort of feel like, okay, what's left to life after the great moment of proposal of the two of them getting together, whatever. And the rest of life carries on after that. And that's not the end of the story. but we don't often focus as much in novels on the rest of the story. Yeah. That's and an the interesting of the rest of the story. Yeah. Because you do, I mean, there's, I think newlyweds go through that sort of, um, that realization that they've caught the thing they were racing to catch, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Like we've, here we are, we're together. Right. And now <laughs> what does and the then daily life starts like? happening and you're not courting each other anymore. I mean, you are ultimately always courting each other in a sense, obviously, but you know, you're not going out on dates every single night that you possibly can or et cetera. <laughs> right, right. It's just <laughs> a different, yeah. it's a different focus. Um, right. You join arms, basically, you link mm-hmm. arms and step forward into the world. And exactly. it feels very different than when exactly. you are solely facing each other and you can't see anything else. <laughs> yes, exactly. Which incidentally is uh, part of why I like um, Bustman's Honeymoon from Dorothy Sayers. So she has this series of novels focused on the romance between Peter Whimsey and Harriet Vane, but she doesn't end the series of novels with the proposal. There's another one after that, after they're married, which is a a freshening change. Which one is that one? Uh, It's the last one, actually pretty much her last novel ever, I think. Um, It's the one that happens, so it begins with their marriage, and then basically it's what happens on their honeymoon, which sounds strange is that, but you have is that to read strong it. poison or gaudy night no strong poison is the first one so it goes strong poison have his carcass which i don't care for as much um i don't think i've read that one then gaudy night and then busman's honeymoon oh uh, busman's is the one you're talking about okay right right, right. I, I have read busman's honeymoon but it's been a while <laughs> um i think have his carcass is the only one i haven't read but that needs to go on my list Ah, so that one happens in between everything, which makes it a little awkward because they're sort of in a stagnant relationship. Sort of limbo. Right, right. Okay. Anyways, so if you're done reading Austin, if you've read all of Austin, then read Dorothy Sayers. (laughs) Sounds good. Yeah, I'm still (laughs) partway into Persuasion and I need to reread Mansfield Park too. So Mm, mm -hmm. I've got my work cut out for me, I think. Um, We were going to talk a little bit about Box Hill. Yes. And about um, the confession of Emma afterwards, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and Box Hill, if it's at all helpful as you're listening, is in chapter seven. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to go there myself. Chapter seven of the book. 
Yes, chapter right. seven of Emma. Um, and I'm looking here at that passage. Um, and actually, I do think that they represented Frank pretty effectively in the new Emma. In fact, all the Emmas, hmm. it's a little bit hard to fail on this juncture because mm-hmm. I think it's a very real human thing that he's doing. Like he's being super obnoxious. Yes. <laughs> obnoxious <laughs> and rude and self-centered and spoiled. Mm-hmm. And it's really kind of like when it's not so difficult to portray an evil character in a story, but it's harder to mm-hmm. portray a convincing good one. Um, yes. I do think that Frank is fairly convincing here um this passage says it will not do whispered frank to emma they are most of them affronted i will attack them with more address ladies and gentlemen i'm ordered by miss woodhouse to say that she waives her right of knowing exactly what you may all be thinking of and only requires something very entertaining from each of you in a general way and he pretty much states that word for word from the book Hmm. Um, and then asks for two things moderately clever, three things very dull indeed, if not the one very clever, entertaining, entertaining thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where Miss Bates opens the fated door for Emma's sharp tongue and says, oh, very well, then I need not be uneasy. Three things very dull indeed that will just do for me, you know. I shall be sure to say three dull things as soon as ever I open my mouth, shan't I? And it, the commentary that Jane Austen makes is that she looks around with the most good-humored dependence on everybody's assent. Mm. Hmm. And she even says, do not you all think I shall. Hmm. In other words, she's sort of saying, you know, we, we all know I'm likely to say some very dull things. I'm admitting it myself right. and I'm doing she it in a good natured way. Surprising degree of self-awareness more than Emma has. And, and anyone who was kind and well-bred would simply say, you know, laugh and nod. Mm-hmm. And it's not an awkward or embarrassing thing for Miss Bates to make that confession hmm. in the context of a kind audience. Hmm. Um, but it says Emma could not resist. Ah, ma'am, but there may be a difficulty. Pardon me, but you will be limited as to number only three at once. Hmm. And it's interesting too, um, in the text right after that, and in I think most of the movies, says, you know, Miss Bates, deceived by the mock ceremony of her manner, did not immediately catch her meaning. Um, and then, you know, it comes on her, but the fact that she doesn't catch it right away is a testament to Miss Bates' charity that she did not want to think ill of Emma. Right, she couldn't imagine that Emma would ever as a, right. be so cruel. Insult, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. And then at this point, she sort of bows out. Mm-hmm. And we were commenting about the different versions of how Emma makes it up to Miss Bates. Mm-hmm. Um, I was impressed in my most recent watching of the R- Romola Garai version, uh-huh. how, how deep she goes into guilt and remorse. Hmm. Yes. Their interpretation it's- allows her to be very saddened, sickened, made haggard by yes. her failure in a way that, that this modern one, I this modern, they're both modern, this new one <laughs> um, uh-huh. doesn't do. Like she's sort of, you can tell she's embarrassed and she sort of pouts off into her windowsill and cries. Mm-hmm. But I almost felt like she felt more sorry for herself than she did for Miss Bates. Hmm. At least initially. Huh. Interesting. I actually, I'm looking here at the, um, the, and actually this, the Romola Garai version would, would speak to this for sure. Time Mm -hmm. did not compose her, Emma. Mm. As she reflected more, she seemed but to feel it more. And I really saw Mm. that in that version. She just becomes kind of ashy gray. Yeah. Yes. Haggard. The color. Yeah. She had never been so depressed. Um, 
she was silent, and Emma felt the tears running down her cheeks almost all the way home without being at any trouble to check them, extraordinary as they were. And I don't think she cries in that version quite so much, whereas in this um, this new one, she in does new one, she doesn't cry, cry in the carriage. Oh, okay. In the new one, she does. Um, in the Romola okay. version, I don't think she she cries yeah. much. I'm, or I'm trying to remember um, which one is it, or is it both where she walks through the village and she feels everyone's eyes on her. Oh yes, that's, that's kind of that's like the, the Romola the, okay, version. Huh? Kind of that feeling of shame of wrongdoing yes. as she's seeking repentance. The, yeah, they and, all and restitution that, she feels that everyone must know. Right. How, what how huh. horrible she had been. Which in a village that size and the nature of gossip in a village is not impossible. Right. Um, it made me think wonder. Of, yeah. Yeah. yeah P- uh, Peter Lightheart in his book, Miniatures and Morals, I think I mentioned it last time, has some really interesting commentary just on how a novel like this works. Just the tightness of the society and how that creates the frame around the story that they have mm-hmm. to work within. Um, and how actually the theme is kind of loving your neighbor, learning to love your neighbor in a way. Mm. I think you really see that in Pride and Prejudice, Mm -hmm. where society Mm -hmm. is really, the society that they're in is really instrumental to everything that happens. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, The closeness of, even the interaction with a a regiment of soldiers coming and leaving, Mm -hmm. and how that affects the society there Hmm. in Pride and Prejudice. Yeah. I have a lot of kid kid play noises in the background. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just comment. I've got happy, the, the kiddos yeah. are outside the office door playing, so a happy afternoon going on. Yes, I think so. <laughs> um on in chapter eight it says uh, she was just as determined when the morrow came and went early that nothing might prevent her. Mm. Um she mentions that she had no objection to being caught on her errand because she would not be ashamed of the appearance of the penitents so hmm. justly and truly hers. In other words, oh, she, interesting. she was so that. truly penitent that if someone caught her at it, she wouldn't have been embarrassed. Hmm. Um, Particularly, she, she's hoping that Mr. Knightley will see, right? Well, I think she's, she mentioned that she, it says she would have no objection. Hmm. She thought it was unlikely that she would see him. Hmm. But she would have no trouble with him seeing her, if so. Mm-hmm. And in the movie versions, they do have him find out about her errand. Yes. I think he does here, too, when she comes back. So I think I remember noticing that, that she was very glad that he knew because she wanted him to know that she was penitent. Because she, she hadn't was... expressed penitence in the initial conversation. She had sort of argued with him. and Right. Yeah. Um, oh, by the way, just a quick uh, page note. Um, I think your version is divided a little bit differently than mine. Mm. So for those, some versions, I think, start the chapter numbering over every book because it's divided into three books within the story. So oh, for those okay. who, who are, where it's numbered continuously, uh, Box Hill is chapter 43. And then the one we're in right now is chapter 44, I believe. That's a, that's a good so. point. I do think yeah. that the chapters are very different here. Yeah. So just in case anyone's following along with either version. There we um, go. Here in, so you said it's 43? Uh, yes, 43 is, is Box Hill. Mm. So, so 44 is the apology. Got it. So in chapter 44, it says, um, poor old Mrs. Bates, civil and humble as usual, looked as if she mm. did not quite understand what was going on. Mm. I am afraid Jane is not very well, said she, but I do not know. They tell me she is well. I dare say my daughter will be here presently, Miss Woodhouse. And I almost get the feeling that Mrs. Bates thought that Emma was calling on Jane, Hmm. not Mm -hmm. on Miss Bates. Hmm. So just to clarify, Mrs. Bates is the mother. mother, Miss Bates is the spinster. And then, yeah. It's it's interesting because we're so not used. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In most of the movie versions, they don't give the mother a voice. Exactly. At all in the entire movie. So it's actually really interesting that she communicates here. Yeah. As a hostess. Hmm. Miss Bates soon came, very happy and obliged. 
it says in quotes. So she would say, I'm very happy and obliged. Mm. But Emma's conscience told her that there was not the same cheerful volubility as before, less ease of look and manner. A very friendly inquiry after Mr. Fairfax, she hoped might lead the way to a return of old feelings. The touch seemed immediate. And that's where she says, mm. Ah, Miss Woodhouse, how kind you are. I suppose you've heard nor come to give us joy. Goes on to talk about the... Um, proposal right the right the um job proposal that she accepted from uh, Smallridge Mrs. Smallridge via Miss Bates which is also really interesting I think they explore that a lot more in depth in the book than in any of the movies Mm -hmm. I'm noticing here that that passage is a lot more extensive than you give it credit for if you were to Mm -hmm. just go by the the movies the movie versions yeah um it's it actually struck me recently thinking about it how maybe this is really obvious and it just took me a long time to see it, but Mrs. Elton is very much a sort of foil for Emma in her relation to Harriet. Mrs. Elton and um, Jane Fairfax parallel that. And so it's easy, you know, Emma, it's interesting how irritated Emma is by what Mrs. Elton does without seeing that she is in a way doing that same thing to Harriet. But yeah, here Jane, in spite of how obnoxious Mrs. Elton is. Basically, Mrs. Elton ends up being the only person she can turn to, ironically, as she finally accepts the the position she was pressured to, the position of being a governess. Right, yes. She says here, Mrs. Elton, I suppose, has been the person to whom Miss Fairfax owes this position. Um, They also mentioned that Emma was most sincerely interested. Her heart had been long growing Mm. kinder towards Jane. Um... And there's a lack of severe, uh, severe, sorry, sincere. There's a lack of Mm -hmm. sincere interest in Emma, in Jane earlier on. Yes. There's more just almost a spiteful jealousy. Huh. Huh. That's a good point. You think she's sincerely interested in Harriet, but she actually really isn't. She's sincerely interested in her own plan. It flatters her vanity to help Harriet. Right. Hmm. And it's, Which, that's another, th- mm-hmm. I was thinking that sort of, uh, an angle of Emma's blindness hmm. is that she's yeah. not sincerely interested in others. And she, she doesn't even know her own motives. And she's never, oh, you're right. She's not even sincerely aware of herself. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. She, um, they do at the beginning, um, Jane Austen writes about Emma's basic indulgence her entire life Mm, mm -hmm. and i wouldn't i don't get the impression from how austin phrases it that she's straight up spoiled i do think that it's important for emma that she has natural good qualities Mm -hmm. um otherwise what what does mr knightley fall in who does mr knightley fall in love with right for example emma very graciously puts up with a truly difficult situation with her father and truly serves him selflessly. Um, she she has her whole life. genuine love, the capability mm-hmm. to genuinely love. Yeah. Um. Her um. Her governess, who turns mm-hmm. friend, mm-hmm. to um. Weston, Mrs. Weston. Yes. Is who she is when she gets married. Um. And I think she genuinely loves her sister, and her mm-hmm. sister's children. There's an element of her loving those closest to her that just seems Hmm. to come naturally Mm -hmm. which is why i don't think she's just straight up spoiled in a bratty kind of way right and i think i think the new movie also makes her look that just bratty just bratty i mean it started with her choosing flowers for yes i was just thinking of that scene (laughs) not that one (laughs) it's it's a very petty (laughs) depiction of her daily life and her daily life is small it's limited but it's also full of constant sacrifice as she, you know, does everything she can to make her father comfortable, even though her father is a really, in some ways, like he's the unsympathetic character. He's the one who just would drive everyone crazy if they didn't have charity towards him. They mentioned, um, I keep saying they, but I don't mean they. They is for the movies. <laughs> Jane Austen <laughs> talks about Emma's father at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And says that though he's amiable, so there is that, 
there's Mm -hmm. nothing else to recommend him Mm -hmm. as a person. There's just his amiability. So it really is true that her, her undivided love and devotion to him is something that recommends Emma. Mm -hmm. Um, And she cares for him and makes him important Mm -hmm. by her love. Hmm. Um, Yeah. I had forgotten quite how little Austin gives of attention to Emma's father. Hmm. Austin really doesn't give him much to go on. Mm -hmm. Hmm. You mean in terms of... Just as a character. There's sympathetic qualities or just development? Sympathetic qualities and development, mm. but um, I think sympathetic qualities it was yeah. what I was driving uh, at. Peter here. Lightheart was quite harsh on him. I was just rereading a portion before we uh, talked today. I think he called him a elderly child at one point. Huh. Um, yeah, his habit here. Mr. Woodhouse is the embodiment of the, quote, as ever, of Highbury and revels in the sameness. He was earlier talking about the sort of static nature of Highbury. Um, And then he quotes a bit and then goes on to describe his habits of gentle selfishness may be gentle, but they are indeed selfish, fearful of everything. He is an elderly child, a point driven home during a later visit to Donwell Abbey, when Mr. Knightley ensures that Mr. Woodhouse will be entertained by giving him free reign to play with the trinkets and baubles from a desk drawer. But Mr. Woodhouse is is the great man of Highbury. He represents the town's character. But if Mr. Woodhouse represents the town, the town at least is a hypochondriac, if not actually sick. Hmm. Which, and, incidentally, I don't like how they portray the father either. He was way too sprightly and an inappropriate. In, in the new one, his, yes. Yeah. And with that, he took her older sister down with him and in a most detestable way. Oh my goodness. Thank you for getting me started on another yes. one of my least favorite parts of the movie. Yes. <laughs> I had forgotten about that till favorites. now. <laughs> that is so directly contrary to the description in the book. Uh, Jane, uh, not Jane, Emma's sister... I'm blanking on her first name right now. Isabella. Isabella is supposed explicitly written as a very kind, natured, and gentle woman. And here she's this fussing little brat, basically, oh, <laughs> always arguing awful. with her husband. Whereas it specifically talks about how she adores her husband, and her husband is a good man too. Austin does portray him with a little bit of rough edges, but he's kind and noble. I I always (sighs) was predisposed to like Mr. Knightley because I could see and and feel that Mr. Knightley and Emma's relationship had hope to go well Hmm. because the sister and the brother Hmm. were married and it was mm-hmm. a sweet relationship not this horrible yes. i mean they spill out of the carriage and it's been a horrifying Bickering. carriage ride with yes. however many small children right which also just irks me because that's not <laughs> that's not life with small children is difficult but it is not ugly in that a terror way. right right <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> a carriage ride with five children i can imagine would be exactly difficult but to portray it as this sort of horror and that sets up the tone for well like kind of like you were saying that sets our expectations so you were saying you had positive expectations based on seeing their marriage through the book and the other versions and here it gives us the expectation that, okay, now Emma and Mr. Knightley will get married. And that's what they have to look forward to is yep. constantly bickering and, and be miserable right, for the spoiled rest of their children. lives. <sighs> <sighs> In fact, even when she holds um, Isabella's baby, which is a very sweet scene where she's yes. holding baby Emma mm-hmm. and then Mr. Knightley comes over and talks to her. And I think it's supposed to be a foreshadowing of mm. them as husband and wife and hmm. eventually holding a child of their own. But in this new version, they, she sits there woodenly holding this baby as if she has no affection for hmm. her namesake. Hmm. And it gets a little sweeter when Mr. Knightley shows up and says something funny, but it's sort of like he lightened the mood because they're, <laughs> this awkward position of her having to be holding a baby. <laughs> mm-hmm. <sighs> and then, As you said, another one of my least favorite parts. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then everyone starts panicking over the baby. And it does say that Isabella takes after the hypochondriac nature of her father, but not in the over the top ridiculous way where, what is it? The baby starts crying and they start 
basically everyone completely panics. They call the doctor. Panics, they call the doctor screaming exactly. and right. Yes. It's again, it's just over the top. There's no true human nature to it. It's like it's like a, a farce. It's like a you know, almost like you'd expect a comedy play where you don't actually intend to empathize with anyone or find them believable. Yeah. And and the farcical nature too, um, I felt it all the way through to when and again, another very sweet scene in the original where mm-hmm. Mr. Knightley gives up his estate at mm. Hartfield because Emma cannot leave her father. And he he's giving up a much nicer estate is the impression that I get. get. Yes. Or Donwell's at least definitely his own. Larger, I think. Or, oh, it, yeah. Sorry. Is it Donwell? Donwell Hartfield is Mr. Knightley's. Hartfield is Emma's. As Emma's, right. Mm-hmm. So he gives up Donwell to be with her. And you, the impression of nobility and sacrifice that you get, I find, is completely lost in this new one. Mm. And I wonder if it's because she's the, the director sets us up to abhor the largesse that they have hmm. so instead of it being a sacrifice it's kind of a oh, thank goodness you know he's he willing to give, give up his riches to up. have his what's that <laughs> that he can at least give that privilege up his oh, white right, cisgender right. male oh, to privilege get the girl if he's a half decent man he can give up all of that junk to mm-hmm. you know what i mean like <laughs> he'll be so much better for it for giving right. it up to be with emma right. and it just loses it's i think honestly kind of an emasculating scene instead yeah. of an ennobling mm-hmm. scene. Um, and again, I, I think mm-hmm. that's just us really seeing the, the feminist agenda that the director has. Yeah. And you said Very you had much. seen an inter- interview where you got the impression she really didn't like Mr. Knightley. Right. Well, just that, that quote earlier about uh, where did it go? You know, she, he can be a bit of a mansplainer, she thought, quoting from the this is a Wall Street Journal article. So she decided to literally strip him of his bossy pants. You know. Yeah. Mr. Knightley can be too free with his advice, but he's not occasionally, perhaps. He does reference how he's realized how he chides Emma a lot and she has borne it patiently. But he's not a mansplainer. No. <laughs> Whatever that word even means. And as soon as, you, <laughs> as soon as you've considered the hero of your story a mansplainer, all else is lost anyway. Because yes. where? Yes. how are we ever going to come back from that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I do, I do feel like that she belittles him. And basically she has exactly. a hatred towards him for ever criticizing her female character. Hmm. As if her female character could never do any wrong, mm-hmm. which hmm. is just really destructive to the the balance between the two of them. Right. And Emma the needs Mr. Knightley, and to make her need him less is to not allow her room to grow. Right. And he also can't be a sympathetic and believable character if he's not needed and has no true influence over right. her or perhaps is even detrimental to her yeah. which is sort it's, of where it tends to go yeah it um kind of reminds me of the overall tendency to make heroes more vulnerable mm, kind of like you can't have just a straightforward hero and occasionally you know there can be a well-done story it's like yes it helps like henry v to me is an example of this the play henry v does a great job of showing henry v the king as an excellent leader, an excellent leader to his men, a military leader, um, a true hero, while also having his vulnerable moments where he's struggling with, um, you know, courage and the idea of guilt from um, from Richard the Second, Richard the Second's death, etc. You know, whether or not he even has a claim to the throne before the Battle of Agincourt. Um, but he's still a noble hero. And it seems that in more modern movies, whether it's superheroes or other kinds of heroes, we have this tendency to want to just destroy the very things that make them noble. They can't have mm. a really noble character because it's almost like we've become too cynical to believe that can exist. Mm-hmm. So we have to strip the ability to be truly noble from a character. I think um, some of it is... Um... Daniel and I were having this discussion recently. There's 
a character that can that can be noble in a very strong and intense way mm-hmm. also has all the potential to be really villainous if they were to mm. go wrong which mm. is a kind of a terrifying character to imagine yeah um aslan for example is yes. terrifying as a he's a really masculine character a yeah. sacrificial character mm-hmm. um and he's dangerous he's mm-hmm. not tame and that allows him to be really truly good but also frightening. Yeah. And I think our culture has a real serious issue with um, a masculinity that could simultaneously be good and noble, but also mm-hmm. dangerous. It is good because it is virtuous, not because it's such a weak quality that it doesn't even have the strength to be bad. <laughs> right, right. On that note, um, which would be a great topic for another time i think we will wrap up the discussion today um it's the new emma is an interesting watch and i would highly recommend reading the book first and then go Mm -hmm. straight from the book if you want to go watch it and just just observe what the director did um that was just different from what austin did (laughs) Right. It's more of a more of a uh, read of modern culture's interpretation of the past than it is an interpretation of the past on its own. Um, but also, if you do want a good interpretation, I think, Lydia, you and I both really love the Romola Gray version. Yes. I think that is very true to what Austin actually intended with Emma. And the... Um... I think it's fair to say that the Gwyneth Paltrow version has some merits as well. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, definitely. I'm not sure it's as strong, but but part of that is actual length. Right. It's a standard movie length. Right. Not a and that's series. just, I think Austin just develops her characters a bit too much mm-hmm. to be shortened to a standard movie length, which is, I think, what we see with the different Pride and Prejudice versions also, is yes. that the longer, is it five hours? Or six, uh, six right? Version. I think it's yeah. six. And I do yeah. think they just, oh, that's a good one. they just develop the characters better. And you do have to devote a little more time, but there's mm-hmm. perhaps a, a sign of her greatness as an author is that it's very mm. difficult to condense Austin. <laughs> mm-hmm. You have to be able to invest in reading her or in getting to know her characters. There is no fat it. to cut <laughs> Yes, <laughs> in her writing, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Um, she's d- it's just dense, cram-packed, full of amazing characters and character development. So um, we will definitely have to revisit her. Sounds good to me. And chat at a future time about maybe Pride and Prejudice and uh, Persuasion. Persuasion. Persuasion is one of my favorites. That would be great. Mm. All right. Well, till the next time then. Okay. Till next time.